This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine in clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. And CALCULATE for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash apps. Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast. My name is Suzanne McMurtry-Baird. I'm the Nursing Director at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics. I'm joined today by my partner, Dr. Stephanie Martin, our Medical Director. Today, our topic is a complex uh, multi-system disease case study. See if you can figure out the etiology of this patient's disease processes. Let's start with some history. This patient is a 37-year-old. She is 5'7", weighs 170 pounds, so she has a relatively low BMI. She's a white Caucasian patient. She's a Gravita 1 and she's at 34 and 1 sevenths weeks. She has no significant medical or surgical history, and she's found unresponsive at home. Medical emergency staff are called, and she's taken to the closest hospital, which happened to be a level one hospital. They check fetal heart tones. They are positive. She's conscious, yet confused. The patient is outside of their scope of practice. They recognize this, and they make plans and transport her to a level two hospital. So the question is, at this point, if you work at a level two center, do you take this patient? What are some of the questions that you would want to, you know, ask when they called you to request a transfer? Do you know your scope of services if you work in a level two hospital? Yeah, and I think, you know, when you're at a level one center and you have a patient of this with this kind of significant illness coming in uh, to be seen, it's absolutely appropriate to know your scope of services and transfer them out. But I think, you know, it bears asking, does this patient really need to be at a level two center? I mean, she's unconscious at home. Is that really within the scope of a level two center? And just because you get a call for a transport doesn't mean you have to accept it. Um, you need to make sure that the patient, you know, that you have the services needed to provide what this patient needs. So absolutely appropriate to be asking those questions. So um, Suzanne, why don't you tell us what happens once she gets admitted to the level two center? Yes. Uh, so she comes in to the level two center. And at this point, they check her cervix. She's nine centimeters and has a bulging bag of water. So delivery is going to be imminent. They check her fetal heart tones at that point and they are absent. They do an ultrasound and confirm that the uh, fetal demise. And now she's unresponsive. Uh, very um before that, she was, you know, very confused, and then she goes unresponsive. Um, she's presumed to have an unwitnessed seizure at home based upon the history that they had taken and what information they had received from the Level 1 hospital. And then they presume that that seizure was probably due to an eclampsia, so they start MAG. 
Yeah. So I think this is a good time to kind of think through a differential diagnosis. So you've got a patient now who has a history of being found unresponsive at home. She's got a fetal demise. Um, We haven't given you vital signs yet, but we will. But even with this little bit of information, you can form a pretty good differential. And eclampsia is absolutely on the list. You also have to consider the possibility that the patient may have had a stroke or some other cardiac event. Maybe there's substance abuse involved. You know, she could be infected and be septic or in septic shock. I mean, there's a a lot of different things that immediately come to mind that are going to drive your evaluation, which we'll talk about in a minute. So the the baby delivers and it's stillborn. Um, and then they decide that this patient is too complex for a level two center. And they make plans to transfer her to a level four maternal center that actually has a OBICU. So, you know, again, this patient's going to be stabilized and then uh, set up for transport. So she is transported and she arrives at the OBICU level four maternal center Here's her blood pressure, 130 over 103. So based upon our previous lectures, especially the um, Vital Signs or Vital uh, com, uh, podcast that we did, you know, I would like for you to note that 130 over 103, that's a pretty narrow pulse pressure, very narrow, uh, shock-like, and the degree of vasoconstriction uh, with that high of a diastolic blood pressure in relationship to the systolic pressure. And then her heart rate is sinus tac, it's 116. Her pulse ox is 99% on 15 liters of oxygen uh, face mass. So that's that's pretty significantly low, you know, uh, as far as, uh, as high oxygen requirement at that point. Uh, her mental status, she's confused, and she has dark, concentrated oliguria, uh, urine output. So the question here is, what other assessment parameters would you like to see the nurse and the physician complete at this point? Um, and I think that that bears, you know, a lot of consideration because you've got a patient who is confused. She had been previously unconscious, had a seizure. She has abnormal vital signs, is requiring a lot of oxygen. So thinking through that as we go through some of the systems that we're going to assess, think what else you would like to see. Certainly, just the vital signs alone and really kind of point you to a clinical picture that is reflective of hypovolemia. And we certainly know that that patient, this patient, has a disease pathophysiology that would set her up for hypovolemia if she is preeclampsia, has preeclampsia, and she's been eclamptic. So um, we also need to think about assessment that looks at oxygen delivery and oxygen consumption. Yeah, so Suzanne, you mentioned the possibility of preeclampsia. And of course, if we think this patient has an eclamptic seizure um, as as the etiology of her neurologic changes, um, then you might be confused by this blood pressure. She's not definitely hypertensive, even though she has a very significantly elevated diastolic. And um, I would argue that, you know, this is the kind of thing that you can see as the disease becomes more advanced and volume depletion becomes a bigger, bigger issue, which we'll talk more about as, as the case progresses. Right. So let's look at her initial labs that were done at this level four center. So hematologic studies, uh, let's begin there. 
So her hemoglobin is 9.4 and her hematocrit is 28%. So again, I just want to stop there and comment as we've done in previous podcasts that when you get a hematocrit, uh, you're looking at that hematocrit value in relationship to the intravascular volume status. So it's not a a tell-all sign as to what her oxygen-carrying capacity is just by drawing the lab and getting a value. So take it into consideration when you're evaluating a patient like this. What is their intravascular volume status? If it's uh, hypovolemia, then these are going to be falsely elevated uh, values. So let's look at her clotting in this patient. The platelet count was 34,000, so quite significantly low. And that matched the fibrinogen at 66, so extremely low fibrinogen platelets. Fibrin split products were high at 1 to 64 ratio. PT is greater than 15 seconds and PTT greater than 130 seconds. So the consideration now with these lab studies is DIC and very con- uh, something that we'll discuss in a few minutes. Look at her renal status next. Her creatinine is significantly high at 5.2. So again, remembering back to uh, some of our other discussions, a creatinine level in pregnancy is usually around 0.5. So when you start approaching a a creatinine of 1.0, that is significantly high for a pregnant woman due to the increase in her glomerular filtration rate in pregnancy. Her BUN is also elevated at 58. So when you look at the BUN to creatinine ratio, we've got a 10 to 1 elevation BUN to creatinine. Looking at her liver function next, her AST is 1,680, so 1,680, significantly high. Her LDH is 1,749, high, and her ammonia is, is 56, also elevated. So we have liver involvement for this patient. Cardiac. So the cardiac enzymes were drawn due to an initial EKG that this patient had at the level four center. And she had elevated ST segments and several leads. So they drew some cardiac enzymes. Her troponin was eight and her CPK was 6,174, both significantly high. And then her other labs that were abnormal, her uric acid was 16.3 and her urine drug screen was negative. So let's start going through some of the diagnosis and then the plan of care that was considered for each system for this patient. So at this point, I think, you know, it's reasonable to assume that this patient has preeclampsia with severe features that's progressed to HELP syndrome and eclampsia. That's the most likely diagnosis that we're dealing with based on the information. What's not clear is why the patient is in DIC. Now, in a patient who presents with a stillbirth and evidence of volume depletion like this patient has, it's certainly reasonable to assume that there might have been hemorrhage or a, you know, a concealed hemorrhage, a large abruption, etc. But that was not the case in this patient. So we've got DIC from a different cause. And then she's also flirting with multi-system organ failure. We've got liver involvement. We've got hematologic involvement. We've got renal involvement. We've got uh, neurologic impact. So this is multi-system organ disease, um, and some systems are failing. So what's our plan from here? 
So the plan is to do hemodynamic monitoring, um, you know, arterial line, central line, get some non-invasive assessments as well. And that will dictate if this patient needs volume replacement and what type and how much, those types of things. Uh, A complete physical assessment, a head CT because of the, her patient that, you know, she'd been unconscious, she's confused, get additional labs and certainly consultations. So let's go over some of the assessments that uh, this team did for this patient. So her neurologic assessment, let's start there because that's certainly concerning and something that OB does not usually um, do a significant or such a thorough neuro assessment and something we need to really beef up on our assessment skills, I think sometimes. But this patient's confused, she's combative, she denies visual changes or headache, her CT scan is, is done, and, they, and the CT scan shows multiple lesions, frontal and occipital lobes. And the etiology is interpreted to be either ischemic regions or infarctions. And one thing I want to point out on our DTRs is that they're just two plus. So very normal DTRs. And I think often that we think in obstetrics that you've got a patient that is preeclamptic with severe features. Now she's progressed to uh, eclampsia that your DTRs do not predict seizure risk. And you can have patients who have seizures and then before and after have normal DTRs. And I think that that's just a point that we would like to, to make on, on these patients. So the plan is to have a neurology consult and to optimize our oxygen status. So certainly if you don't want to have a patient who has hypoxemia, uh, which may lead to uh, neurologic um, deficits and then uh, because of tissue ischemia. And then we're going to do frequent neuro checks. Let's move on to pulmonary assessment. When you auscultated her lungs, her she has crackles bilaterally. And the chest x-ray shows pulmonary edema. And her pulse oximeter value is running between 94 and 99% on 15 liters face mask still. So the plan, this patient was intubated because of increasing oxygen requirements and, and, and also because she kept, well, she was so confused. And so the consideration was if she became unconscious again, that it'd be to protect her airway. But her increasing oxygen requirement was the biggest concern at this point for, in consideration of intubation. Um, we Go ahead. Yeah, I think... Um... You know, one of the questions is about this pulmonary edema. She's got pulmonary edema. And I think we've talked about this in prior podcasts, and you know how we love to hammer this home. You've got to decide, is this cardiogenic or non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema? Because it's going to guide your treatment. And this patient could have either or both. Preeclampsia puts her at risk for non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. But, you know, we've given you some hints that this patient is having some cardiac issues as well. And so she could have cardiogenic pulmonary edema as the primary or as a secondary, you know, or a, 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 an additional etiology. So, you know, this, she's certainly a complicated patient, but I don't want you to assume that preeclampsia pulmonary edema equals volume overload. That's not always the case. This patient has a narrow, very narrow pulse pressure. So we know that that's likely not what we're dealing with. And that's going to dictate your treatment here. 
So the way to work that up is to, you know, you've got to evaluate the heart and get an echocardiogram, which was done. And we'll tell you about that in a minute. Certainly. And, you know, the other consideration is you have to optimize our oxygen content, delivery and consumption. So the plan for this patient was to give some packed red blood cells uh, to optimize those parameters. Um, And then, you know, certainly frequent assessments, especially with the auscultation of lungs at least every two hours. So let's talk about her renal assessment. Her urine output was averaging between 30 and uh, arranging between 30 and 125 cc's an hour. The appearance of the urine was dark and concentrated. So her labs, let's look at those. Her creatinine was 5.2 again, and her BUN was 58. So that's a review of the previous labs. Again, with that BUN to creatinine ratio, about 10 to 1. So they did further labs, and they did uh, some urine uh, labs. And her urine sodium was 52, and she had concentrated urine as demonstrated by a elevated urine osmolality and um, specific gravity. So the diagnosis was oliguric uh, pre-renal acute kidney injury. So the plan was to get renal consult, urinate, uh, get her urine output every hour and evaluate that, make sure that it was improving and uh, staying over 30 milliliters an hour, get daily renal labs, and then optimize again oxygen transport and consumption to prevent renal ischemia and intrinsic injury. Let's go now to the next um, system evaluation, and that is her liver. So this patient had an uh, abdominal ultrasound and was shown to have hepatomegaly. And you could actually feel and palpate her liver about six centimeters below the diaphragm. So quite significant hepatomegaly. And and the patient um, had complained a little bit of uh, right upper quadrant pain, um, but this was a significantly large liver. And the fluid in the ultrasound uh, showed fluid around her liver and her spleen. So additional labs, again, those labs that we talked about earlier, again, her AST, they did some to repeat to make sure that, you know, all of these labs were, were still elevated. Her AST was ranging between 1395 and 1680. Her LDH range was 1320 to 1749, and her ammonia levels were 49 to 56, and her uric acid range was 14 to 16.3. So all significantly elevated liver enzymes. Yeah, and just to kind of expand on this a little bit, you know, LDH is also a marker of hemolysis, which is happening in a in a patient with HELP syndrome, assuming that that's what we're dealing with here. And the uric acid, you know, uric acid elevations are typical when you have impaired renal function because the kidney's job is to clear, um, you know, certain... Pr- products from the from the bloodstream like creatinine and uric acid and as the renal function decreases these levels will increase in your blood and so you'll see these significant elevations of uric acid it doesn't mean she have has gout it means the kidneys are not quite doing their job and this all kind of goes together 
Right. And so that's why in the plan, they were going to continue to evaluate these labs and until they decline. So you want to make sure that as you're progressing through your plan of care, that you're showing improvement. So that was the plan and to monitor and correct coagulopathy with blood products. And then the other thing that I want to point out is, you know, when you have such an abnormal assessment finding like this significantly large liver uh, with that's palpated so large that you don't want to palpate that liver because that is going to consume so much oxygen. And this patient had a central line in, and as you would um, evaluate her oxygen consumption, what we saw is if anybody palpated her liver, her return of oxygen to the right side of the heart decreased dramatically. And so we've talked in the past about SCVO2 uh, monitoring and a normal SCVO2 would be around 75%. So what was returning to the right side of the heart should be around 75% to 80%. Uh, certainly, if it's high, then you're not utilizing a lot of oxygen. If it's extremely low, you're utilizing too much oxygen. And this patient would return 38%, so quite significant. And that is due to the pain of, in the palpation of the liver. Remember, this patient is intubated and sedated. Yeah, so I think this, you know, this liver involvement is fairly unusual and uh, in its severity. And so you have to stop and ask yourself, you know, what is going on here? And why is the liver involved? I mean, there could be a variety of different things that be, could be contributing to it. An ultrasound was performed, and there was fluid around the liver and spleen. So she's got some fluid in her abdomen, but there was no hematoma on the liver. And that is probably what most of us in obstetrics would think about in a patient with HELP syndrome. Um, but this patient didn't have pain from it. And, uh, and there was no evidence of a hematoma. You just had a very enlarged liver. So HELP syndrome can absolutely explain what's going on as a temporary situation. Um, you could have acute fatty liver of pregnancy as the primary explanation, but you could also have, you know, almost like a shock liver where it's just inadequately perfused, just like the kidneys are inadequately perfused and therefore it's not able to, to perform its duties appropriately. And you start seeing all these abnormalities and certainly you could have a combination. So your workup is going to try and determine what your primary etiology is. But the reality is no matter what the etiology the treatment is going to be fairly similar. If it's a perfusion problem, you've got to address perfusion pretty quickly. Um, But when a liver is not functioning, and we know it's not functioning because this patient is in DIC, so we now have our explanation for the DIC, the treatment is going to be to maintain perfusion to the liver and fix the DIC. Whether it's help, whether it's fatty liver, no matter what it is, You've got to be putting a lot of blood products into this patient, a lot of clotting factors into this patient until the liver recovers and can take over resuming its normal function of making clotting factors. So let's move on now to the cardiac assessment. So they do the 12 lead EKG. And again, it was suggestive of a, um, some ST segment elevations and possible myocardial infarction. And they had um, the areas of infarction they were considering were anterior and septal wall uh, myocardial infarction. And that was due to the sinus tachycardia with T-wave inversion in leads 2, 3, V1 through V4, and the ST segment elevation in V2 and V3. 
She had cardiomegaly that was noted on chest x-ray, and her cardiac echo showed hypokinesis of the anterior and septal walls with an estimated ejection fraction of 20 to 30%. All of this with consistent with MI. Yeah, I want to point out, you know, you don't diagnose a myocardial infarction with an echocardiogram, but you can see the effects of it. And I also wanted to point out that a decreased ejection fraction does not mean cardiomyopathy by definition. A decreased ejection fraction says the heart is not able to eject the amount of blood from the ventricle that it should be. You want that to be, you know, around 50 to 60% so that with each beat of the heart, it's pumping out about 50 to 60% of the amount of the blood that in the ventricle at the time. And there are a lot of things that can decrease the ejection fraction, including cardiomyopathy, which is far more common. But the other findings on echo are what dictate the cause of the decreased ejection fraction. So if you see a big dilated ventricle with thin floppy walls, then you've got um, a systolic dilated cardiomyopathy. If you've got thickened walls, um, et cetera. So in this case, the decreased ejection fraction was because there was areas of the myocardial that could be seen on the ultrasound that were not moving properly. It's damaged muscle, so the heart was not able to pump effectively. So our cardiac plan was daily 12-lead EKGs, certainly continuous ECG monitoring, that's kind of understood, dobutamine to increase her contractility, to evaluate hemodynamics every one to two hours, cardiac enzyme trends and watch those and until they begin to come down to discontinue the dobutamine as soon as possible to start nitroglycerin. And that was only if you could maintain a cardiac output that was adequate again to, um, to, for perfusion to all of our organ systems. Uh, something to remember about with dobutamine is you, you, you're increasing contractility with dobutamine, and that is going to use a lot of oxygen. So you want to titrate your dobutamine to the optimum contractility, but be careful about making sure she doesn't utilize too much oxygen in a, in a patient who's just had an MI. And to, you know, consult cardiology, certainly. The other consult that I think is really helpful here in anticipatory planning is for the nursing staff to consult cardiology, uh, clinical nurse specialist, educator, whoever that might be in your institution, because you have a patient that you're, uh, you're not used to caring for, and, but you're still caring for the HELP syndrome, and you want to make sure that you're doing everything as from a nursing perspective uh, that you can to optimize this patient's outcome, but also to plan for future cardiac rehab because she's had an MI. So Stephanie, I'm going to let you talk about the consultamegaly, uh, your favorite uh, term that we have in this patient because she has multi-system organ failure and involvement and lots of consults to talk about. Yeah, I, I describe it as consultamegaly when you have basically one consultant per organ. And um, I think we forget that, yes, there are absolutely appropriate roles and times to to um, engage consultants. But you've got to be able to pull all these consultants together. And that's really the role of the intensivist and the maternal fetal medicine docs who should be involved in this patient's care. I mean, there's no question that this patient should have an MFM and an ICU doc, in my opinion, um, involved in their 
care. And they can act as kind of the stewards and the connectors um, who are, you know, kind of bringing together all of the different consultants so that we're, that everybody's on the same page. So just to highlight a couple of the perspectives from the consultants, um, the cardiologist really, um, they did, uh, the plan was to do a cath as soon as the patient was stable enough. Um, and they uh, were presuming that she had coronary artery disease, but they were unclear what the cause for the MI actually was. And the neurologist felt that the um, the lesions that were seen on CT was really from an unknown etiology uh, for the ischemia and the infarctions. They thought, well, she could have a seizure disorder, that she could have clots, maybe she needed to be started on dilantin. And the pulmonologist described no risk factors for pulmonary edema, that this was probably pneumonia. And I think when you look at these interpretations, it becomes clear that for those who do not have experience with complicated obstetric patients, they can really underestimate the potentially significant and devastating effects of preeclampsia. Preeclampsia is a multi-system organ disease. This is not just high blood pressure. And uh, and in fact, this patient, you know, preeclampsia was her underlying issue that led to all of these issues. But the cardiologist, the neurologist, and the pulmonologist really did not understand the possibility that preeclampsia could be contributing. I mean, Think back to the own patients that you've cared for whenever internal medicine or another non-obstetric, you know, provider has been consulted and they really just did not understand what was happening with the patient. I mean, I've had, I've had consultants tell me to, you know, consider uh, the, the classic really is the patient with right upper quadrant pain who clearly has preeclampsia or help syndrome. And now we're working her up for a gallbladder disorder. And that's a fairly classic um, misconception or lack of understanding that we see, it, it becomes even more complicated in the ICU. So super important to have some connection, you know, multi, multidisciplinary rounds that are happening frequently, communication going through defined channels, you know, so that everybody is kind of on the same page and you can learn from each other. So the outcomes in this patient are actually very good. Um, Everything that the nurses and physicians uh, determined in their plan of care, uh, the patient um, improved her hemodynamic and oxygen transport values, which I think is very significant in this patient, um, all normalized with volume resuscitation. And I think this is really a key point here because when you've got a patient with pulmonary edema and then you determine that there might be a cardiac component, it's very, very... Um, it's difficult sometimes to convince yourself that she also needs volume resuscitation. But remember, this patient was having multi-system organ disease. We know that she was volume depleted. And sometimes the consequence of your treatment is that you may end up dealing with other issues. Like it is possible this patient's pulmonary edema will get worse as uh, temporarily as you volume replete her. However, she's not going to recover if you don't provide adequate volume. She's not going to save her kidneys. She's going to have, you know, I mean, significant multi-organ worsening if you don't adequately volume resuscitate her. But when you understand the pathophysiology, you also understand that you've delivered her. And so her pulmonary edema and her vascular injury should be improving because you've, you, the body will start to recover from the preeclampsia process. Now the DIC is going to make things worse, et cetera. This is why this patient is so complex, but you can't be afraid of volume when it's appropriate. And if you understand your hemodynamic assessment, you understand that this patient is volume depleted. She's got multi-system organ, organ dysfunction and failure, which is c further complicated by the fact that she is volume depleted and you're not going to get anywhere without volume. 
And that was the huge conversation at the bedside, you know, uh, talking with the specialist and, and the anticipatory uh, intubation, you know, she was showing you signs and symptoms of uh, worsening non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema, possibly cardiogenic pulmonary edema at the time, but you knew you were going to have to volume resuscitate this patient and that could get worse and she had increasing oxygen needs. So a uh, great point and something that is anticipated, again, that her, that her respiratory would get worse. Um, the dobutamine in this patient to deal with her contractility was discontinued after 36 hours, and she was switched over to nitroglycerin without any changes in cardiac output. Her brain infarcts, again, were presumed to be due to preeclampsia. She regained consciousness. Uh, she was extubated and, um, and not sedated. And so, again, that's a difficult thing to evaluate when a patient is being sedated on a ventilator to what improvements that might be while she's being ventilated. But those spontaneous awakening trials when a patient is on a ventilator is critical, um, and not to mention with other um, uh, benefits of the spontaneous awakening. But she did seem to have some deficit neurologically. Um, she would confuse things. So um, she would get past and current events uh, a little bit confused. So there was some concern there that she may need some rehab with neurologic um, uh, issues. Her liver enzymes began de decreasing, her DIC resolved, and her urine output increased with the creatinine de uh, decreasing. So no dialysis was required. Um, so her acute kidney injury uh, resolved uh, with the improved perfusion. Again, that is a, a critical. Uh, issue when you have a hypovolemic patient to reperfuse the kidneys in a pre-renal azotemia. Cardiac cath was done a week later. There was no evidence of coronary artery disease. So the etiology of the MI was presumed due to preeclampsia, vasoconstriction. She was in the OBICU for six days, and she was discharged to cardiac rehab facility after eight days of hospitalization. So let's discuss a few points. Mine would be preeclampsia is a multi-system disease process and not just about blood pressure. Um, I have lectured on this for years and, you know, we get so focused on the blood pressure and many of the sickest patients I've cared for have not had significantly high blood pressures. They weren't requiring uh, antihypertensive medications as frequently as you would have anticipated in a severe patient. Yeah, and to add on to that, you know, this patient was found unresponsive at home, and what we don't know is what was happening leading up to that. So it's very possible that this patient had periods of of hypertension that were just never appreciated because she never sought care. And as preeclampsia evolves and you get this damaged vessels, fluid leaks out. She's hypoalbuminemic and decreased oncotic pressure because she's peeing out protein typically. And so the volume depletion gets worse and worse and worse 
worse and the vasoconstriction gets worse and worse and worse. And that's very likely what happened with this patient, that this is like kind of the end stage of preeclampsia when it's uninterrupted. So she has these insults to her brain because of the volume depletion and the vasoconstriction. She's got, you know, injury to her heart and then she ends up with pulmonary edema and something ultimately makes her collapse, either a seizure or the MI or hypoxemia or a variety of different things, just volume depletion, you know, syncope, who knows, or all of the above. And we're seeing the tail end of it where she's not got the classic features because she's so advanced in her disease. It's very possible that that's what we were dealing with here. If you think back to the formula for blood pressure, you know, there's your cardiac output components. So stroke volume, heart rate, and systemic vascular resistance. So volume can play such a huge role in what your blood pressure is. And if she's hypovolemic, then you're not going to see those really high systolic values. Right. And now Julie couldn't be with us today, but I know that she would be thinking as we do as well, you know, what, how can you use simulation to help improve this? And a couple things really come to mind here. I can hear Julie talking in my ear on this. Me too. Um, <laughs> so this is a pretty complex case. And if you've got, unless you have a super experienced team, like an advanced team that is very comfortable with simulation in advance, then you could use a complex case like this. But with, with, with most of us who are simulating on the unit, you're not going to be simulating this complex case from beginning to end, but you can break it apart. And one of the really key things that there's an opportunity for us at all levels of care, it's about that decision for transportation. So, you know, how do you know if the patient needs to be transported? Do you know your scope of services? Do you know who you're going to call? Do you understand, you know, what's appropriate for a level two and what's appropriate for a level four? You know, you could make the argument that this patient might not have gone, might should maybe should have gone from a level one to a level three or four and not to a level two. And then she ultimately got transported out. What about the people at the level two facility? How, uh, you know, are you can simulate, how does that conversation go? What what are the key things you need to know before you accept a transport or facilitate getting them to a di- even a higher level of care? And then if you're that higher level of care, you can use cases like this to give feedback and to practice simulation with the teams that are transferring to you so that they understand better what what these patients needs are going to be. They may not have the experience. Um, They certainly aren't taking care of them in their facility. And so they may not really understand. They may think I need to get the patient to the closest hospital in the shortest amount of time, but that may not be what serves the patient best in the long term. Yeah. I think another thing to uh, point to make is that what happens if you, this patient goes to a hospital that doesn't have an OB service and she's seen in the emergency department there. And this would be a case that they could use to practice where this patient's going to go that they don't know. And that's quite frequent in some states now with such uh, rural hospitals, many rural hospitals closing, and where do we send this patient because we don't have obstetric services anymore. The other point that I would like to make is regarding nursing consultation and leadership and other services. I think as obstetric nurses, we may or may not have a clinical nurse specialist anymore. Um, who are the clinical leaders that that need to be um, not just consulted, but involved in the care of this patient? So she's quite complex. And so we could use a neurologic uh, clinical leader or a cardiac clinical leader to consult, maybe even other specialties to 
direct us from a nursing perspective um, and not just, you know, feel like we're going to have to do it alone and, and to figure this out in, in the care of this patient. Yeah, and along those same lines, you know, this patient, by the time she made it to the tertiary care center, she was postpartum. And there are a lot of facilities that would never have even considered getting an obstetrician or maternal fetal medicine doc involved in this patient's care because she's postpartum. But it's essential that we be included in this evaluation so that we can determine whether our role is necessary or not. And most of the time it is. Um, That doesn't mean that we don't need the input of other specialists. For sure, this patient needed evaluation by neurology, cardiology, etc. But that obstetric link is really, really important to kind of bring everybody together so that we can have, you know, really fully informed conversations about what might be going on. And, and we try and manage the consultamegaly and get everybody out of their silos and talking together about what, you know, the simplest explanation is typically the most likely. So preeclampsia really it could explain everything that was going on in this patient, even though the specialist thought there might be a bunch of individual things going on. One way to do that is to have a designated time in which all the specialists and your all your team members that are consulting together come to the bedside at the same time. So that's a, a one one approach. We want to thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics, on Twitter at OB Critical Care, and on Instagram at Critical Care OB. Email us or send a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. And for a list of references on today's topic, go to the Read app at QXMD dot com slash apps or our website. Thanks for listening. This podcast and music was produced by Austin Bear. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please reach out to Nashville Podcast at gmail.com. Once again, that is Nashville Podcast at gmail.com.